Lord, I pray that you would take this uh, rich and explosive and healing portion of Scripture central to the life of Jesus, central to um, the pulse of the core of your life that you bring us in this one parable from John's Gospel, the parable of the true vine. Um, just keep coming back, Lord. And I pray we've read this and heard it taught and maybe even memorized it so long. I, I pray for a relaxed keenness and freshness that we might be defamiliarized from this passage in a way and, and approach it as if we just turned the corner into the new creation. Um, and I just simply want to get out of the way, maybe be a helper, but we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would step forward and take all the nutrients and the beauty of the wine from this vine and bring it to us this morning. It is a kind of never-ending beginning for our lives, particularly as we come out of COVID. We learn how to do relationships again and love again. Um, speak to us and may this be a fragrance uh, that you bring us this morning as we spend several days in and around this passage and in the farewell discourses that you bring. Um, so Lord, that's our prayer. By your spirit, bring your breath and come to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend, Laura's heard me say this uh, several times recently, but we have a friend named Sean. Um, I don't think, I think, I think we've moved over to mountain time. Um, <laughs> but I'm just trying, not going to drone on. There was a guy who came out of church, you know, that was always people who loved to time your sermons. He said, Pastor, your sermon this morning was, I timed it, was not as long as it usually is. It just seemed long. <laughs> And so I, I pray that you would help this not, how can it not seem long when we're in the farewell discourses? But we have this friend named Sean, and he was telling us the other day, uh, he's a fellow teacher when I was, te- we, we, I was teaching AP English. And um, so he said, he, he's from Ohio, loves Ohio, lives in Sumter, South Carolina. He said, he was, you know, had, I don't know, 10 hours to go from Sumter to uh, wherever he lives and his, his uh, sister lives in Ohio. So sister said, hey, there's this uh, great Tom Clancy novel you, you need to listen to. It's gonna, it'll take you all the way home. So he went and he got the 10 CDs. He put them in, you know, back when cars still had, anyway, had a CD player. Changes every two years. Uh, but he, he started listening to it and he said it was great. It was really intriguing. Um, he said, you know, it got even more intriguing, but it got really difficult. There were side turns, there were switchbacks, and, and you know, um, all kind of things, uh, uh, flashbacks. There was a man named John who was really an intriguing character, and then he just falls off the planet. He's just not there anymore. And so he's wondering what's happened to him, and the woman... A woman dies, one of the main characters, and then you kind of adjust to that a little bit, taking more switchbacks. At the end of the novel, she shows up again. You know, there she is. And so Sean gets, gets, gets home, and his sister says, How didn't you love that Tom Clancy novel? He said, Well, I 
sort of did, but he said, I just didn't get it. And then in stark terror, he realizes that he, he had had it on shuffle. <laughs> and that, I mean, for, for 10 hours, you know, here, here are these uh, random escapades that never reach eternity. That never come into home plate. That you know, Aristotle said, you know, all good art has a beginning, middle, and end. It's like middle, middle, middle. And uh, he, he just said, he just said it was the oddest feeling. And I got to thinking about that. And that's what our life has been like for about a year. We've been kind of living on shuffle. And even if COVID had not come, we live in a culture more and more that has a kind of um, that offers no beginning, middle, and an end, no creation, fall, twist, darkness. God comes out of the goodness of his heart, brings the alchemy of his grace, things turn, and he begins to bring us home to him and to the glories through the gates into a glorious ending. And so we, we, our ancestors who were Christians, lived these themed lives. It's anything about Western culture, it's themeless. It's a random collection of short stories that don't really connect. It's like living, living life on shuffle, I think, a little bit. And when you feel with disappointments and things that you had planned and all of this, your mind goes back to last year with grandchildren who didn't get to go to camp and just, you know, a million things many of those things in the, in the depth of those valleys we've been taught things. But where do we go to get the theme back? Where do we go to sort of say, where is my, I want to call what Jesus speaks to here, which we're going to read in just a second. This might well be the never-ending beginning. Like when you've lost it and you feel like you're, in, you're just in a random collection of short stories living on shuffle, where do you go? I think this is as good as you get. And I want to read it to you. And it's from the 15th chapter of John. And it uh, is verse 1 through 11. No, you've heard it a lot, but we're going to be meditating on it today with various permutations tomorrow and then, and then, and then the, the third day. But we're going to take little side trips too. So here is what Jesus says remembering the context of what we're hearing here, these are the last words of Jesus. This is Thursday night before Good Friday, where everything looks like a shuffle. And the deep, deep shadow of the cross, which did not teach, it was a surprise for the disciples because they didn't want to hear it any more than we did. It was no surprise. He was crucified from the foundation of the world. He knew the shadow of the cross falling upon him. And so his final words, as you might rather suspect with anyone who has final words, I've been at the bedside of a number of people who have died. They do not, to a person, want to talk about the formula for photosynthesis. They are hugely distilled and simple words. And they come just in monosyllables. And it's sometimes the most beautiful thing that you can hear. And these are the last words. I love you. 
Will you forgive me? I am so sorry for things that I've done. Take it forever in your heart when I leave this world. Uh, Today, my coronation day, that I have loved you as a frail person and always remember. And so our final words are the words that stain us. And so here's what Jesus speaks in the middle of these words, chapter 14 through 17. And he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. Remember the foot washing just earlier than that and the words that he spoke. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You're not the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in my words, abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, dwell, remain. Don't run away from, go deeper in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. One of the things I can never reconcile to my reason, which is not a very trustworthy thing to start with, it's a premises, is the fact that on this night, can you imagine how you would feel if you were Jesus, getting ready to bear the, the sins of the whole world, Um, rejected, facing infinite suffering, people who walked out on you, scattered sheep, uh, and all of that in his life. And you know what the insistent theme that he wants to talk about on that night is joy. Now, that just, that's what he is promising us. And it ought to speak to us in the midst of any circumstance that we're in. Bad times, suffering times, disappointments, COVID times. He's saying, I'm speaking these things to you um, so that not your joy may be magnified. All the kind of things that we think of will be a good life and a happy life and a fulfilled life. And let's turn the Rio stat up on all those things. And said, no, I'm I'm, I'm talking about having my joy in you. That will be your joy. We're not going to start with your joy and magnify it, but we're going to take, we're going to take the blood out of my veins and the breath of the spirit from me and the beauty of the life of Jesus and breathe that into you that your joy may be full. It's interesting. He doesn't just say that you may be a little more joyful 
You may go through a nice mood swing, a little bit easier to live with. This is fullness of joy, not a modicum of joy, but fullness of joy that he promises um, in the midst of any, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome it all. I've overcome the world. Whatever you face, I've faced. And I will face whatever you face with you. And your joy may be full. And uh, I thought, um, you know, we just don't deal well with suffering. The other day I took two from our parish in Columbia, the Cathedral Parish of of Agna in, in Columbia, the Church of the Apostles. We have these two brilliant girls with church, strange churches full of people like this. They're from St. Petersburg, Russia. And they are at USC earning a doctorate in, uh, in Russian literature and also teaching undergraduates uh, Tolkien and Dostoevsky and things like that. And I drove them to the airport, oh, two, three weeks ago. Um, and uh, I said, what have you learned about um, American kids from teaching these undergraduates? They were silent for a little bit, and then they all said, I'll tell you what I've learned. They have no place for understanding that suffering may ennoble your life. They have every, everything about their life is instant gratification. Um, you know, and I said, well, probably put me in there too. But, uh, you know, maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain. That's pretty much it. And so these girls, wonderful girls who are deep Christian girls learning. And she said, you know, we in Russia, we've been through a lot of suffering. And it's been terrible, but it is taught and it's formed us and it's brought depth. And we found Christ in the midst and down the bottom of that pit. Um, and and I, I just love that. And here's the key that I want us to get for how we enter into, Catherine was talking about Psalm 91, and how it begins with he who dwells under the shadow, shadow of, the, uh, of his wings and so forth, living in eternity. I won't be able to quote it. I'll make you read it yourself. <laughs> uh, psalm 91, beautiful psalm, beautiful psalm. I first fell in love with that psalm when my son David Barr and I were getting ready to climb the Grand Teton, and we were down at the Ward Hotel eating a steak the night before and this sounds ridiculous, but we've been to climbing school, the Axum Climbing School and all that. And we just had a wonderful time. And suddenly, in a wrenching way that went all the way down my esophagus, it, it occurred to me, I actually had to climb the Grand tomorrow. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it. I just enjoyed being with my son. And, you know, we were learning knots and, you know, learning things. I said, no, I mean, have you seen the Grand Teton? It's like when you tell a three-year-old to draw mountains. This is what they do. And this is what the Grand Tetons look like. And so I, I was panicking there. And there was a woman who had her Bible out next door to me talking to her husband. And I, I really did this. I said, lady, I don't know who you are, but would you pray for us? Because we're getting ready to climb the Grand Teton tomorrow. And she said, I would be glad to. And she prayed this amazing prayer. And I said, who are you? She says, I'm Gloria Copeland. This is my husband, <laughs> Kenneth Copeland. <laughs> I don't like much about any of their theology, but I love them. And they are beautiful Christian people. And she said, the one thing I want you to do before you climb is read Psalm 91. 
She said, before you, when you wake up in the morning, tomorrow morning, read Psalm 91. And, and, and in, in that psalm comes this great biblical theme. I'm, I'm, I'm out of the way, but I'm handing on to you. I'm the mater d, bringing in, you into the great feast right now. And what it is, is a word that Jesus uses 10 times. And it's the word dwell. When you, when you go to seminary, one of the, you have to take Greek. One of the, one of the first words that you learn, meno. And it's translated in variety. It should be translated in variety. It's a deep, rich word, meno. Dwell, abide, rest in, get inside, not run away, not leave. Jesus went down to Capernaum and stayed with his family for three days. He dwelt there. He abided there. He did not ricochet off the experience. He was there. His heart was open. He was alive. He was present. Dwell. And, and the theme here that Jesus keeps bringing again and again is dwell in me. When you dwell in me, don't forget the vine. The whole, the whole when you think about vine, you tend to forget that. It's what makes wine. The vine is where the, the wine comes from. It's where the, the taste of new life, it's where the joy and the conviviality, it's where love comes from, from the veins of Jesus, from the veins of Jesus. Dwell in me. Um, and when you dwell in me, uh, you, you, will, you will resist. not your dwelling and your capacity for dwelling that saves you. It's the blood of Christ that saves you. But our dwelling in him and not ricocheting off him or not just, just thinking about Jesus from time to time or intellectually, but heart to heart, trusting, resting, surrendering. There's a deep presence that comes to us apart from which we have nothing. You, you can have all this world, we sang, but give me Jesus. The other, the other year, 30 years ago, I don't know, whenever it was, I was watching National Geographic and it was a bunch of people on a, on a boat down in the Antarctic. And it was, it was a scene in which all these beautiful, small um, ice flows were being driven by the wind across, across the sea. And there was a narrator, as there is in, you know, National Geographic specials. And they're all going across huge waves. Um, the wind is howling. And all at once, you're unprepared for this. But as you're looking at that, here comes this ice flow going this way. The only one that's going up this way. And I'll never forget what the guy, he said, he said, you see that? When he said, that's not an ice flow, that's an iceberg. And it's not driven by the wind. It's not driven. It's, it's not driven like all these other things are. You can't even see the depth of where it is, but it's being pulled along and pushed along by deeper currents invisible to the eye. And Jesus is saying, because chapter 15 talks about being hated by the world. He talks about sorrow. He talks about suffering in his last words. But he's given this. He's saying, if you dwell in me, you're not going to be an ice flow. I'm giving you something different from being just driven, driven along uh, and by the winds and doctrine of this world, as Paul would say. But there's a deeper life 
to dwell in and live in. What a wonderful thing that comes to us, that joy, when we, uh, in a world that does not know joy, and looking for the wrong places of joy. I love the words of Karl Barth, and I'll give these to you. This is in his commentary on Romans. The merry men of God are merry where there is no merriment. And when we learn to dwell in him, not saying there's not hard times, not pain, suffering. He's saying that's coming. But if, you're, if I make you an iceberg <laughs> and you dwell in me and all my nutrients are there, all the promises of God, all the presence of God, all of the, all of the miracles of God will be with you. And so this, this, uh, this where we are is... Uh, is one of the seven I am sayings. This is the last of the I am sayings. Ego a me. You remember back in Exodus. I am, remember I am has sent you. That's the raw, majestic presence of God when you come into I am. I am. And you know, Jesus, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I am the door. I'm the resurrection and the life, he says to Mary and Martha. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And now I am the true vine, the true vine. So I want to take a few minutes. I say concluding minutes. Don't put your shoes on yet. It's going to be a little longer. But when he says, he doesn't just say I'm the vine. Pay attention when you read scripture to every little detail. There's no misstep. So when he says, I'm the true vine, he, by implication, he's saying they're counterfeit vines. They're false vines. They're, they're dead in places. They're, um, uh, they're, they're, um, they're vines. In fact, he says here, if, if you dwell in anything other than me, your life will wither. That's a definition of a, a withered life is dwelling in, opening the depth of your soul to something that you think is going to fulfill you or, or uh, be your home or be your ultimate security. When we say, if I could just have this, I'd be okay. Whatever this is, if it's not Jesus, it's the definition over time of a withered life. It's the definition. I mean, I can give illustrations for me, but we'd be here. Um, so the question to ask that I want to ask all of us. I'm, I'm, not, I'm walking with you. I'm, I'm not riding in the Jeep. I'm with you asking this question to me. The central thing here is if, if you dwell in me, of all the things that you can dwell in, I will, I will make you fruitful. I will make you live. I will bring you in eternal life. I'll take you through your, your heart's worst fears and disappointments. And, and um, the question then is, if our joy depends on dwelling in him, the huge thing in front of us is what are you dwelling in? We become like what we dwell in. I become like what I dwell in. What, the intense focus of my imagination is what grips me, what lives... When, when I'm doing nothing, I'm not doing nothing. Something is going on behind my face. 
I'm revisiting things. I'm dwelling somewhere. It's like if you have a, you know, nobody sees it, but when you have a chipped tooth, your tongue is just going back there doing all this stuff. You go, you're dwelling in it. Well, every one of us is dwelling, you know, somewhere. And so what, just think, this is just a random selection, but what are the things that we dwell in so we can lift them up and say, God, help me to see that. Turn my heart, turn my heart to want to delight in you and and to love you and to, to dwell in you is the ultimate beginning of my day, the never ending beginning, the never ending pathway, never ending conclusion. And, you know, just note some things. Where are you dwelling? Worry. You know. No, I know that doesn't affect y'all. But, you know, uh, fear. I mean, when we were in COVID, the big question that all of us asked, you know, that we didn't really say it this way, but how can I stay safe? And over the course of time, if you're not careful, maybe you did, maybe I did, that concern of being careful. And, you know, like Lady Macbeth, how many times do I have to wash my hands? You know, well, all Neptune see and all that stuff you get at CVS. Uh, will it watch, you know, and just the, the grip of fear, the grip of worry in our lives. Um, another thing that we dwell in is some injustice. I just let this tag you if it does. So you, during this never-ending beginning, hearing Jesus' words and just saying, you know, Lord, I think that's probably, you know, something hits us and it comes to us, um, you know, some, some wound comes. And by the time it first comes, it's sort of hot. And then if we don't do something with it, if we don't ask God to come into that, it begins to cool down. It begins to ice down. It begins to become what scripture calls a hardened heart. We heard about this morning, didn't we? Uh, a little bit in, in the path. Um, my, my favorite uh, novel that, that deals with this, and I know probably he's going to quote Great Expectations again. Yes, I am. And so Miss Havisham, who has been jilted 30 years ago, and she stopped the clocks in her whole place. Do you remember? It's so visual. You say, well, you know, it, I'm, mine is not as dramatic as that. But when that wound, that betrayal, when that hurt came in, the clock stopped. The clock stopped. And so she's talking to Pip. She, he's, he's walking into this bizarre mansion where everything is it was 30 years ago but rotten because life stopped and here was the wedding feast that never got eaten and she says she turns to him and she says on this day of the year long before you were born this heap of decay stabbing her crutch stick at the pile of cobwebs on the table but not touching it was brought here it and I have worn away together The mice have gnawed at it, and sharper teeth than the teeth of mice have gnawed at me. Bitterness, you know, unforgiveness. I I don't think anybody's here that, you know, that that, that hadn't hadn't dwelt dwelt with that in some sort of way. it, It can be a dwelling place. And this is a great week. Prayer tonight, 
just right now, supernaturally, whatever it is. You know, I've been here a lot of times. You say, go again. Just say, I'm putting this on the altar. Still has some power. Still has control. Still assaults my imagination. I'm thinking of one person as I talk. Maybe that'll encourage you. And I need to take that person, renounce revenge. Renounce justice. One of the things that John sees in the book of Revelation when he first opens up and comes through that door, come on up, come through the door into heaven, chapter four of Revelation. The great thing that he sees before he sees anything else is the throne of God. And what that's saying is that you're not, John, on that throne. You're not on that throne. And so when we get hurt, one of the first things we want to do is run to the throne and bring judgment. And John is saying, my vision tells me that throne is occupied by the living God. Give it to him. Give it to him. Um, Another thing that we, I know at least for me, have, this is probably a five-session teaching. I'll move on. But the the other thing that, that we dwell in is if only. If only I lived in another place. If only I had my youth back. I'll live in that one. Uh, if only I was somewhere else. Um, if only this had not happened. If only I lived in another time. You know, I'd be a great guy in the 19th century. You know, if, if only. And you know, you find this in Scripture so beautifully in chapter 11 of John's Gospel when Lazarus has died. And the two sisters come, Jesus comes, and he did not come at the right time, according to them. They thought that they were going to a funeral, they were going to a resurrection, they didn't know it. And so they, they come to him, and remember what they said, both of them said together, if only you had been here, if only, then my brother would not have died. But because God is in control and because he's the master of our lives and because he's our redeemer, he looks straight at them into the eyes and said, do you believe that I'm the resurrection? I am the resurrection and the life. All believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And they're taken to an entirely different place. And the the thing here is instead of living, if only from the past, some place in the past, or some situation that wish we wish we were in, if the house had sold, if the cancer didn't come, understand all those things. But Jesus says, I am, I'm present, I'm here. Take your eyes off the if only and look at me and let me be in your life right now. A new beginning, a new hope, a new healing, eternal life, I am the resurrection and the life. Um, you know, we live, we live uh, another thing that's kind of dramatic. But one of the other places that we dwell, I'm getting true bond in a minute, but you've got to get this, is distraction in our day and age. Just all the ways distraction uh, grabs hold of us. And all the digital stuff, I'm included in it. I'm, I'm not pointing a finger, I'm pointing a finger at me. I love to preach against Facebook and stuff, but then, you know, every third day I, I turn over to Laura on the bed and say, what's, what's cool on Facebook? What's happened? 
What are they doing? Who is it? Fear of missing out, FOMA. Um, and, you know, uh, Professor Joad, philosophy professor, said there never was, there wasn't a, never an age like ours uh, where useless information mattered so much. <laughs> now, really, how many of you love Cracker Barrel? You like to go and eat at Cracker Barrel? You, let me tell you what you like. You like the second room. The first room you walk into in Cracker Barrel is what your head looks like when you're on TikTok. <laughs> With all that stuff in there, it's like you live in, you're walking into Gatlinburg or Myrtle Beach. Or, you, have you been in there? Okay. Um... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said all that, but <laughs> um, distraction. Just hear me again. What are you dwelling in? Oh, nothing really majorly toxic. Yes, but are you dwelling in the beauty of Christ, the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the humility, the delight of who He is and what He's done? Do you enjoy Him? Are you in you're in the TikTok world, Instagram world? Um, uh, so, um, I think I think we can we can one last thing we can we can dwell in self hatred, y'all. I'm not saying I'm I'm saying conviction and repentance is key to turning and coming into God. I've been dwelling in every place but you. I, I settle me down, bring me, still me, bring me into a place of silence. But one of the things that we can deal with is not confession or not turning away from our sin, but we can dwell and abide in our failure and sin to the extent that we're more focused upon our sin than we are on the beauty of the forgiveness of Christ. Uh, John Claypool told me years ago, he said, you know, the, the tragedy of Judas is that he never waited around long enough to see what God could do with human defection and human failure. And, and for those of us who may, and then Augustine said, he said, the great tragedy of Judas is not that he, um, he betrayed Jesus' love, it's that he underestimated it. And if you're someone who has for decades or years almost elevated it to a level of, um, of brilliance by saying, I hate myself, isn't that what God wants me to do? He cannot use you if you hate yourself. He cannot flow through you. He cannot bless through you if you're filled with the self-rejection. And sometimes the person you most forgive is the hardest. And that's you. And to come into his presence and to allow all the, the blood to come out of his side and the water to come out of his side and to say, I don't want to be so prideful. God could forgive everybody else, but I shouldn't have done it. And I'll carry it to the grave because I'm better than everybody else. Have higher standards. Understand truck drivers, you know, but what about people like me? Should never fail. I want you to receive that is a, a dwelling, an invitation to dwell in grace 
and forgiveness and to lay down and to actually become washed, humble, yes, but new, with a new song, new capacity to serve and love, better sense of humor. He loves you. But you know what? He loves you in your sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. Are you dwelling in him or are you dwelling in yourself? Look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus and be at rest. Now, just some minutes on abiding in Christ. Am I on? Yep. Okay, I'm on. Um, what does it mean? I had somebody the other day say, I read this thing out. What? Sounds good. Sounds rational. I'm not sure how to abide in Christ. Go to Catherine's workshop. But don't go there yet. <laughs> what does it mean to abide in Christ? And I want to just give you, this is, this is not, these are some biblical helps, I think. Number one, take some time to abide in the beauty of Christ. Take some time to abide in the beauty, the loveliness, the loveliness of Christ. Um, you know, when, when John finally makes it up into the heavens and the vision that he has been given in the last book of the Bible, it's a vision of heaven. He comes up, he kind of surfaces in chapter four and chapter five. And it, it, these two chapters are just resplendent with praise with beauty, with delight. Uh, around the throne of God is, is, is the crystal fountain. And around that is a, is, a, is a full rainbow. We only get a half a rainbow in this world. In heaven, we get a full rainbow. And it's just so lovely. And the four living creatures are there. You've got to have an on-fire imagination to get in this and not get hung up by being too literalistic. They have eyes all over them. What's that mean? They're taking it in. They're expectant. They're awake. They're being moved by the glory of God, by the beauty of God, by the majesty of God. And um, uh, what happens when you and I allow ourselves to not just say, well, that's a pretty little thing, but when we get struck by it, and we open the grid work of our heart so that that beauty, we trace the, the sunlight back to the sun. That's what happens when beauty comes. And when that, when that happens to us, we, we get an eviction notice that says, you're not running your own life anymore. You know, we're, we're bringing you out and taking you somewhere. There's a woman named uh, Elaine Scarry. And she's bought, she wrote a book on, called On Beauty. I don't know whether Elaine, this is a wonderful book, but I don't know if she's a Christian or not. But she wrote this. Just listen to me. Bear with me. I love this. She said, at the moment we see something beautiful, we undergo a radical decentering. Beauty, according to this woman she quotes, requires us to give up our imaginary position at the center. A transformation then takes place. Think about being at the grantee. Think about looking at your granddaughter. Think about anything that bears the beauty of God to you. A transformation then takes place at the very roots of our sensibility and our immediate reception of sense impressions and psychological impressions. When we come upon some, some beautiful thing, uh, the tiny mauve 
orange-blue moth on the brick, Augustine's cake, a sentence, she goes on and on. But then she says, it is though one has ceased to be the hero or heroine in one's own story. When you're struck, when you go and, you know, and, and see a, you know, hear St. John's Passion or something, and you walk out, you don't sort of say, how did I come across? You know, it, it, we have been, she goes, oh, this is the last. We are usually instead conducting ourselves as the central figure in our own private story. Right? And now we live in a culture that has no overarching story. It has no promise giver. It has no promises. It has you and choices and preferences. And what beauty does and what the beauty of Jesus does to come around him and worship him and lose ourselves in him, it's a kind of dethroning activity in which we don't have to be the middle anymore. We can be one of those elders on the side who are just having a fantastic time losing themselves. You know, we sing that Wesley hymn, throwing down our crowns, throwing down our crowns, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Because so what are we talking about? We're talking about dwelling in Christ. What on earth does that mean? Dwelling is beauty. When the beauty comes, don't say, well, I got three seconds here. Let it come all the way in. When you're holding your little child or your little grandchild and they're like a sack of, you know, flour, just inert flour on you, just going like this, and they're there, who's the one who breaks the embrace? A lot of times it's me. Okay, that's enough. Okay. Ooh, isn't she cute? Yeah, you take her. <laughs> or whatever. You know what I'm saying is, let them break the embrace. You let it go. You let the beauty come as long as that, 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 beauty, that beauty comes. Um, abiding in memory. Uh, how many of us take time to, I am remembering what time it is. Um, abiding in memory. One of my favorite Psalms I've just grown to love. And just write this down so you can go. But the beginning of Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. And listen to this. He doesn't just, just not generic. You know this Psalm. Just doesn't say, you know, think, remember back like the psalmist do in so many places. Lie on your bed. Think about your day. Think about moments in which he's drawn you. He said, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. Has anybody ever been in a pit of sorts? You're not there now. How'd you get out? He redeemed your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Dwelling in Christ. Take some time. Take that psalm. Take the psalm 103. What are, what are ways in which God has been those things for me? And you know, as Frederick Beekner, I think, wrote an essay called A Room Called Remember. I just love the title. 
But he says that when we remember what God has done, our little small constricting, nagging, harrowing lives get expanded out for what he's done for us and how he's loved us. Remembering him at those junctions, those times where we felt like we had nowhere to go. And he sent a person. I mean, Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. I, you know, there was, uh, there was fear inside and there was uh, assault from the outside. I was in Macedonia. I had nowhere to go. I was ready to throw in the towel. Nowhere else to go. This is the Apostle Paul. I was ready to quit. And he said, what happened? He said, I'll tell you what turned it around was the coming of Titus. Titus. Titus came. And he was the paraclete. The paraclete was in him. And when he came, everything turned around. And, he, and, and when Titus walked in the door, because Christ was in him, God walked in that door. Do you remember those moments when a, a Titus has come into your life? When, a, when, when, when you, you had nowhere to go and some friend walked, everybody walked out, here comes Titus. And he brings, he's the helper to remember, to dwell in him by remembering. Um, I got more to say, but I think I'm just going to, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say, um, you know, we need empty spaces in our life. Um, Jesus is saying, there's so much that's going to come at you, it's going to distract you. It's going to waylay you into darkness. Try to. Sorrows are going to come. You notice that, he, that Jeremiah doesn't say, you know, if, if some fiery water came or if something came, so when, when the waters come, I will be with you. I will walk with you through it. You shall have tribulation in this world, but take heart. Down in the, the, the deep areas Beneath the surface, no one can see. I'm dwelling in you. I'm dwelling in you and you're dwelling in me. We say that at communion, that he may dwell in us and we in him. Nothing can take the place of the dwelling of Christ in your life. Whatever age you are, whatever circumstances, what, what, the wrong place, right place, terrible circumstances, I will be that deep current that will push you through and I will be with you and I'll bring my love and also I will bring my joy into your joy and it will be great joy because I've overcome the world. Lord, we, we, uh, we thank you for these words that we didn't make up that come right from you with laden with promises and hopefulness and uh, new breath and new creation. Uh, we pray that, uh, as we prayed earlier, that freshly you would be with us and that we'd, we'd hear the words that you speak because we're dwelling somewhere. Nobody's in neutral territory. We're abiding somewhere. Turn our hearts and imaginations and gratitude to you, that we may see your beauty, that we may receive your forgiveness, that we may be Tituses of dwellers into the people who need us, who need you. Um, 
May we be the merry men of God and women who are merry when there is no merriment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.